Principles of Geology, Chapter 14, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell Newly Formed Valleys when traveling in Georgia and Alabama in 1846, I saw in both those states the commencement of hundreds of valleys in places where the native forest had recently been removed. One of these newly formed gullies or ravines is represented in the annexed woodcut, figure 14, from a drawing which I made on the spot. It occurs three miles and a half due west of Milledgeville, the capital of Georgia, and is situated on the farm of Pomona, on the direct road to Macon. Twenty years ago, before the land was cleared, it had no existence, but when the trees of the forest were cut down, cracks three feet deep were caused by the sun's heat in the clay, and during the rains, a sudden rush of water through the principal crack, deepened it at its lowest extremity, from whence the excavating power worked backwards, till in the course of twenty years a chasm, measuring no less than fifty-five feet in depth, three hundred yards in length, and varying in width from twenty to one hundred and eighty feet, was the result. The high road has been several times turned to avoid this cavity, the enlargement of which is still proceeding, and the old line of road may be seen to have held its course directly over what is now the wildest part of the ravine. In the perpendicular walls of this great chasm appear beds of clay and sand, red, white, yellow, and green, produced by the decomposition in situ of hornblendic gneiss, with layers and veins of quartz, which remain entire, to prove that the whole mass was once solid and crystalline. I infer, from the rapidity of the denudation, which only began here after the removal of the native wood, that this spot, elevated about 600 feet above the sea, has been always covered with a dense forest from the remote time when it first emerged from the sea. The termination of the cavity on the right hand in the foreground, is the head or upper end of the ravine, and in almost every case such gullies are lengthened by the streams cutting their way backwards. The depth at the upper end is often, as in this case, considerable, and there is usually at this point, during floods, a small cascade. Sinuosities of Rivers in proportion as such valleys are widened, sinuosities are caused by the deflection of the stream, first to one side, and then to the other. The unequal hardness of the materials through which the channel is eroded tends partly to give new directions to the lateral force of excavation, when by these or by accidental shiftings of the alluvial matter in the channel the current is made to cross its current line of descent, it eats out a curve in the opposite bank, or in the side of the hills bounding the valley, from which curve it is turned back again at an equal angle, 
so that it recrosses the line of descent and gradually hollows out another curve lower down in the opposite bank till the whole sides of the valley or riverbed present a succession of salient and retiring angles among the causes of deviation from a straight course by which torrents and rivers tend in mountainous regions to widen the valleys through which they flow may be mentioned the confluence of lateral torrents swollen irregularly at different seasons by partial storms and discharging at different times unequal quantities of sand mud and pebbles into the main channel when the tortuous flexures of a river are extremely great as often happens in alluvial plains the aberration from the direct line of descent may be restored by the river cutting through the isthmus which separates two neighboring curves thus in the annexed diagram the extreme sinuosity of the river has caused it to return for a brief space in a contrary direction to its main course so that a peninsula is formed and the isthmus at a is consumed on both sides by currents flowing in opposite directions in this case an island is soon formed on either side of which a portion of the stream usually remains transporting power of water in regard to the transporting power of water we may often be surprised at the facility with which streams of a small size and descending a slight declivity bear along coarse sand and gravel for we usually estimate the weight of rocks in air and do not reflect on their comparative buoyancy when submerged in a denser fluid the specific gravity of many rocks is not more than twice that of water and very rarely more than thrice so that almost all the fragments propelled by a stream have lost a third and many of them a half of what we usually term their weight it has been proved by experiment in contradiction to the theories of the earlier writers on hydrostatics to be a universal law regulating the motion of running water that the velocity at the bottom of the stream is everywhere less than in any part above it and is greatest at the surface also that the superficial particles in the middle of the stream move swifter than those at the sides this retardation of the lowest and lateral currents is produced by friction and when the velocity is sufficiently great the soil composing the sides and bottom gives way a velocity of three inches per second at the bottom is ascertained to be sufficient to tear up fine clay six inches per second fine sand twelve inches per second fine gravel and three feet per second stones of the size of an egg when this mechanical power of running water is considered we are prepared for the transportation before alluded to of large quantities of gravel sand and mud by torrents which descend from mountainous regions but a question naturally arises how the more tranquil rivers of the valleys and plains flowing on comparatively level ground can remove the prodigious burden which is discharged into them by their numerous tributaries and by what means they are enabled to convey the whole mass to the sea if they had not this removing power 
their channels would be annually choked up, and the valleys of the lower country and plains at the base of mountain chains would be continually strewed over with fragments of rock and sterile sand. But this evil is prevented by a general law regulating the conduct of running water, that two equal streams do not, when united, occupy a bed of double service. Nay, the width of the principal river, after the junction of a tributary, sometimes remains the same as before, or is even lessened. The cause of this apparent paradox was long ago explained by the Italian writers, who had studied the confluence of the Po and its feeders in the plains of Lombardy. The addition of a smaller river augments the velocity of the main stream, often in the same proportion as it does the quantity of water. Thus, the Venetian branch of the Po swallowed up the Farinese branch and that of Panero, without any enlargement of its own dimensions. The cause of the greater velocity is, first, that after the union of two rivers, the water, in place of the friction of four shores, has only that of two to surmount. Secondly, because the main body of the stream, being farther distant from the banks, flows on with less interruption. And lastly, because a greater quantity of water moving more swiftly digs deeper into the river's bed. By this beautiful adjustment, the water which drains the interior country is made continually to occupy less room as it approaches the sea, and thus the most valuable part of our continents, the rich deltas and great alluvial plains, are prevented from being constantly under water. River Floods in Scotland, 1829 Many remarkable illustrations of the power of running water in moving stones and heavy materials were afforded by the storm and floods which occurred on the 3rd and 4th of August, 1829, in Aberdeenshire and other counties in Scotland. The elements during this storm assumed all the characters which marked the tropical hurricanes, the wind blowing in sudden gusts and whirlwinds, the lightning and thunder being such as is rarely witnessed in our climate, and heavy rain falling without intermission. The floods extended almost simultaneously and with equal violence over that part of the northeast of Scotland, which would be cut off by two lines drawn from the head of Lochranagh one towards Inverness, and the other to Stonehaven. The united line of the different rivers which were flooded could not be less than from five to seven hundred miles in length, and the whole of their courses were marked by the destruction of bridges, roads, crops, and buildings. Sir T. D. Lauder has recorded the destruction of thirty-eight bridges, and the entire obliteration of a great number of farms and hamlets. On the Nairn, a fragment of sandstone, 14 feet long by 3 feet wide and 1 foot thick, was carried above 200 yards down the river. Some new ravines were formed on the sides of mountains where no streams had previously flowed, and ancient river channels, which had never been filled from time immemorial, gave passage to a copious flood. The bridge over the Dee at Balaterre consisted of five arches, 
having upon the whole a waterway of two hundred and sixty feet. The bed of the river, on which the piers rested, was composed of rolled pieces of granite and gneiss. The bridge was built of granite, and had stood uninjured for twenty years, but the different parts were swept away in succession by the flood, and the whole mass of masonry disappeared in the bed of the river. The River Don, observes Mr. Far Carson, in his account of the inundations, has upon my own premises forced a mass of four or five hundred tons of stones, many of them two or three hundred pounds weight, up an inclined plain, rising six feet in eight or ten yards, and left them in a rectangular heap, about three feet deep on a flat ground. The heap ends abruptly at its lower extremity. The power even of a small rivulet, when swollen by rain, in removing heavy bodies, was exemplified in August 1827 in the college, a small stream which flows at a slight declivity from the eastern watershed of the Cheviot Hills. Several thousand tons weight of gravel and sand were transported to the plain of the Till, and a bridge, then in progress of building, was carried away, some of the archstones of which, weighing from half to three-quarters of a ton each, were propelled two miles down the rivulet. On the same occasion, the current tore away from the abutment of a mill dam a large block of greenstone porphyry, weighing nearly two tons, and transported it to the distance of a quarter of a mile. Instances are related as occurring repeatedly, in which from one to three thousand tons of gravel are in like manner removed by the streamlet to still greater distances in one day. Floods Caused by Landslips, 1826 The power which running water may exert in the lapse of ages, in widening and deepening a valley, does not so much depend on the volume and velocity of the stream usually flowing in it, but on the number and magnitude of the obstructions which have at different periods opposed its free passage. If a torrent, however small, be effectually dammed up, the size of the valley above the barrier and its declivity below are not the dimensions of the torrent, will determine the violence of the debacle. If a torrent, however small, be effectually dammed up, the size of the valley above the barrier and its declivity below, and not the dimensions of the torrent, will determine the violence of the debacle. The most universal source of local deluges are landslips, slides, or avalanches, as they are sometimes called, when great masses of rock and soil, or sometimes ice and snow, are precipitated into the bed of a river, the boundary cliffs of which have been thrown down by the shock of an earthquake, or undermined by springs or other causes. Volumes might be filled with the enumeration of instances on record of these terrific catastrophes. I shall therefore select a few examples of recent occurrence, the facts of which are well authenticated. Two dry seasons in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, United States, were followed by heavy rains on the 28th of August, 1826, when from the steep and lofty declivities which rise abruptly on both sides of the river Saco, 
Innumerable rocks and stones, many of sufficient size to fill a common apartment, were detached, and in their descent, swept down before them, in one promiscuous and frightful ruin, forests, shrubs, and the earth which sustained them. Although there are numerous indications on the steep sides of these hills of former slides of the same kind, yet no tradition had been handed down of any similar catastrophe within the memory of man, and the growth of the forest on the very spots now devastated clearly showed that for a long interval nothing similar had occurred. One of these moving masses was afterwards found to have slid three miles with an average breadth of a quarter of a mile. The natural excavations commenced generally in a trench a few yards in depth and a few rods in width, and descended the mountains, widening and deepening, till they became vast chasms. At the base of these hollow ravines was seen a confused mass of ruins, consisting of transported earth, gravel, rocks, and trees. Forests of spruce fir and hemlock, a kind of fir somewhat resembling our yew in foliage, were prostrated with as much ease as if they had been fields of grain, for where they disputed the ground, the torrent of mud and rock accumulated behind, till it gathered sufficient force to burst the temporary barrier. The valleys of the Amanusuk and Sacco presented, for many miles, an uninterrupted scene of desolation, all the bridges being carried away as well as those over their tributary streams. In some places, the road was excavated to a depth of from 15 to 20 feet. In others, it was covered with earth, rocks, and trees to as great a height. The water flowed for many weeks after the flood, as densely charged with earth as it could be without being changed into mud, and marks were seen in various localities of its having risen on either side of the valley to more than 25 feet above its ordinary level. Many sheep and cattle were swept away, and the Willie family, nine in number, who in alarm had deserted their house, were destroyed on the banks of the Sacco. Seven of their mangled bodies were afterwards found near the river, buried beneath driftwood and mountain ruins. Eleven years after the event, the deep channels worn by the avalanches of mud and stone and the immense heaps of boulders and blocks of granite in the river channel still formed, says Professor Hubbard, a picturesque feature of the scenery. When I visited the country in 1845, eight years after Professor Hubbard, I found the signs of devastation still very striking. I also particularly remarked that although the surface of the bare granitic rocks had been smoothed by the passage over them of so much mud and stone, there were no continuous parallel and rectilinear furrows, nor any of the fine scratches or strii which characterize glacial action. The absence of these is nowhere more clearly exemplified than in the bare rocks over which passed the great Willie Slide of 1826. But the catastrophes in the White Mountains were insignificant when compared to those which are occasioned by earthquakes, when the boundary hills, for miles in length, 
are thrown down into the hollow of a valley. I shall have opportunities of alluding to inundations of this kind when treating expressly of earthquakes, and shall content myself at present with selecting an example of a flood due to a different cause. Flood in the Valley of Ban, 1818 The Valley of Ban is one of the largest of the lateral embranchments of the main valley of the Rhone, above the Lake of Geneva. Its upper portion was, in 1818, converted into a lake by the damming up of a narrow pass, by avalanches of snow and ice precipitated from an elevated glacier into the bed of the river Dransa. In the winter season, during continued frost, scarcely any water flows in the bed of this river to preserve an open channel, so that the ice barrier remained entire until the melting of the snows in spring, when a lake was formed above, about half a league in length, which finally attained in some parts a depth of about 200 feet and a width of about 700 feet. To prevent or lessen the mischief apprehended from the sudden bursting of the barrier, an artificial gallery, 700 feet in length, was cut through the ice before the waters had risen to a great height. When at length they accumulated and flowed through this tunnel, they dissolved the ice and thus deepened their channel until nearly half of the whole contents of the lake were slowly drained off. But at length, on the approach of the hot season, the central portion of the remaining mass of ice gave way with a tremendous crash, and the residue of the lake was emptied in half an hour. In the course of its descent, the waters encountered several narrow gorges, and at each of these they rose to a great height, and then burst with new violence into the next basin, sweeping along rocks, forests, houses, bridges, and cultivated land. For the greater part of its course, the flood resembled a moving mass of rock and mud, rather than of water. Some fragments of granitic rocks of enormous magnitude, and which from their dimensions might be compared without exaggeration to houses, were torn out of a more ancient alluvian and borne down for a quarter of a mile. One of the fragments moved was sixty paces in circumference. The velocity of the water in the first part of its course was thirty-three feet per second, which diminished to six feet before it reached the Lake of Geneva, where it arrived in six hours and a half, the distance being forty-five miles. This flood left behind it on the plains of Martigny, thousands of trees torn up by the roots, together with the ruins of buildings. Some of the houses in that town were filled with mud up to the second story. After expanding in the plain of Martigny, it entered the Rhone and did no farther damage, but some bodies of men who had been drowned above Martigny were afterwards found at the distance of about 30 miles, floating on the larger side of the Lake of Geneva near Vevey. The waters, on escaping from the temporary lake, intermixed with mud and rock, swept along for the first four miles at the rate of about twenty miles an hour, and Monsieur Escher, the engineer, calculated 
that the flood furnished 300,000 cubic feet of water every second, an efflux which is five times greater than that of the Rhine below Basel. Now, if part of the lake had not been gradually drained off, the flood would have been nearly double, approaching in volume to some of the largest rivers in Europe. It is evident, therefore, that when we are speculating on the excavating force which a river may have exerted in any particular valley, the most important question is not the volume of the existing stream, nor the present levels of its channel, nor even the nature of the rocks, but the probability of a succession of floods at some period since the time when the valley may have been first elevated above the sea. For several months after the debacle of 1818, the Dransa, having no settled channel, shifted its position continually from one side to the other of the valley, carrying away newly erected bridges, undermining houses, and continuing to be charged with as large a quantity of earthy matter as the fluid could hold in suspension. I visited this valley four times after the flood, and was witness to the sweeping away of a bridge and the undermining of part of a house. The greater part of the ice barrier was then standing, presenting vertical cliffs 150 feet high, like ravines in the lava currents of Etna or Auvergne, where they are intersected by rivers. Inundations, precisely similar, are recorded to have occurred at former periods in this district and from the same cause. In 1595, for example, a lake burst, and the waters descending with irresistible fury destroyed the town of Martigny, where from 60 to 80 persons perished. In a similar flood 50 years before, 140 persons were drowned. End of chapter 14, part 2